Well, we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. Uh, You're taught with expository preaching that you're meant to let the text drive the content. Topical preaching is a bit easy because you can use the whole Bible to sort of squish in around what you would like to say. So today's exposition, the the, uh, the heading at the top of my Bible says, Dealing with a case of incest. So that's what we find ourselves dealing with. And uh, someone told me this morning that it was the gay Mardi Gras last night. I I never knew. So interesting that we find ourselves dealing with this subject matter um, on today. God's in charge, isn't he? God's in charge. Let me pray. Lord, we have your word in front of us and we're praying for help. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you uh, communicate truth to our hearts? And as a community, would we... um, become more and more the people you want us to be as we study your word today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Motivation for sexual purity. Where does our motivation for sexual purity come from? We're living in a time in history when sexual norms are changing rapidly. Where do we find the guidelines for these changes? On the one hand, in the world today, we seem like we're moving through a period of revelation and illumination about the injustices that have surrounded sex for centuries. Ever since Lynn Farley coined the term in the 70s, sexual harassment, we've seen a slow-growing awareness And I know it it has been a slow-growing awareness, but there has been an increasing awareness of the far-reaching impact of this type of sexual sin, sexual harassment. Yet, it seems to me, while highlighting the injustice of sex in as a society, we've simultaneously continued to devalue its significance overall. If there is such a thing as sexual purity and I believe the Bible teaches that there is. Where does our motivation for sexual purity come from? Well, the Apostle Paul uh, suggests to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 that this motivation comes from the humility, unity, and identity found in the gospel. The humility, the unity, and the identity we find in the gospel. Last week we opened this series looking fairly quickly through five sessions, um, the whole book of Corinthians. So today we're looking at two chapters. And we were suggesting that a good title for the series could be Gospel Lens Living. The idea that Paul highlights a problem the Corinthian church were dealing with. And then he says, look, if you look at that problem through the lenses of the gospel, through the life, death, resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit to dwell inside us as believers, if you look at it through those gospel eyes, all of life will make much more sense. So last week, the gospel gave us a reason for unity in the church. A reason for unity. And this week, I think the gospel gives us motivation for sexual purity. The church Paul planted in Corinth was growing amongst people who would have previously unquestionably believed this statement. So the gospel has 
is, is been planted in a culture that was pre-existing, right? It's, it's a powerful culture where this is a quote from the first century of that culture. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. This is, this is where the gospel is trying to find a home. That is abhorrent, isn't it? When you stand in the remains of the ancient city of Corinth now in Greece, it's really interesting knowing what subject, uh, issues are dealt with by Paul. You stand in Corinth and you look up to a mountain right above the city and there are the remains of the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. This is a city just marinated in sexual immorality. These temples had hundreds, if not thousands, of temple prostitutes that were there to service what could only be described as an enormous sex industry fueled by the spiritual worldview of the people. So this is the type of place that the church is trying to exist in. Paul is over in Turkey, miles away, and he hears that the Corinthian church is acting as you sort of might expect because they've been marinated in it for so long, the church is acting in similar ways to their old lives, not as new humans filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is what we read, chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So a man in Corinth is involved sexually with his father's wife. In Leviticus 18, 7 and 8, we're told, do not dishonor, this is what the Old, people, Old Testament people, the Jewish people were told, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relationships with your mother. She is your mother, do not have these relations with her. Verse 8, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife, even if it's not your mother. That would dishonour your father. The issue seems not so much to be that, though it is an issue, there is a concerning case of sexual sin, but the really big issue is the church of Corinth is proud of it. The church of Corinth are proud of the fact that they're so liberated, they're so progressive, that it's all okay. It's an interesting thing to think about with the current situation we have in, in society. Um, there are certain th ways of thinking as Christians that can easily be said to be archaic. And to be progressive is to show how much you can uh, accept all sorts of types of sin. Um, how do gospel lenses help us view this problem? Gospel lenses remind us that humility, humility is motivation for sexual purity. How is that? Humility. Humility 
will help us stay sexually pure. Adam and Eve ruined the planet by not thinking God's words were worth listening to, didn't they? They were not humble enough as creatures to respect the Creator's words. Thousands of years later, the devil comes to tempt Jesus in exactly the same way. How did Jesus reply? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying God's words matter. I'm going to come under them in humility. God had told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. That should have been all that was required. Amen. The creator gives advice or guidelines and the advice is heeded. The guidelines are followed. And we know that's not so easy to do because we're, we're human, we're sinful. To obey someone requires a level of humility, don't you think? It requires a degree of submission to their will. Remember, this is what Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. So how are we coping with this humility to come under the word of God? Well, it's hard because we're living in an age of deconstruction. And you know, some things need to be deconstructed. We talked about Lynn Farley trying to put language around an awful culture that existed in the 60s and 70s. And I bet lots of men in churches thought it was okay to put a, a beautiful, sexy woman as, as your receptionist. Because it's just like what it is. It's accepted in society. Uh, of course, that's completely wrong. And we need to deconstruct that. But we're deconstructing marriage. Some of this is good, but like some of it isn't. We're deconstructing gender, masculinity and femininity and, and those who don't feel male or female. We're deconstructing sex as a society. We're deconstructing parenthood, certainly of, of younger kids. Um, we're deconstructing education and learning. Of course we are with the advent of the internet. We're deconstructing community. Some of it's fantastic. Amen? Some of it isn't. And it's hard to know which isn't sometimes. If the Bible is moved from up there to sort of down here, if the authority of the word of God is diminished in our way of approaching it as a Christian community, if God's words are not intrinsically worth obeying, if God's words are not intrinsically worth it, just, he's the creator, he's eternal, he knows everything, his words, they're just worth obeying. If they weren't worth obeying, Adam and Eve were on a hiding to nothing for pain in their lives, don't you reckon? Like if you can't trust the guy who created you, there's a lot of things that can cause you pain and harm in life. There are some things you just can't deconstruct that Adam and Eve would find. If God says to them, drinking cyanide will kill you, it just doesn't work to deconstruct that and say, I think I'll just have a sip and see if I die. Because I'm deconstructing with a lack of humility the one who knows everything saying, oh, I think I'll just... Try something different. And think about this. If, if sex is something that should be kept for the marriage bed, as Hebrews says, marriage, Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. 
then there's no way that we can know this to be true unless we choose to humbly believe God to be good and God to be wise and God to be worth obeying. Adam and Eve could never think about this. They could never have known that one of the trees, there's all these great trees, if God didn't communicate to them and say, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will bring about death, don't eat it. There's no way Adam and Eve would have ever picked that to be a bad tree, would they? Do you remember what it says about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3.6? The fruit was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. What's not to like about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Only the fact that God said it's not great for you. So what's not to like about sex as human beings? Well, only the fact that it'll bond people together in a way that is super sticky, soul to soul, stickier than you could ever imagine. It's scarily spiritual. And that's what our text that Vera read out told us. It's profoundly impacting sexual union on our deepest places as human beings. You can't know that unless you're told that. You can't know that. And that's why, this is a controversial statement, but it's what we believe as a Baptist denomination, the Bible says keep sex for the safe covenant guidelines of marriage between a man and a woman. And I'm not suggesting that that means every marriage is safe. But it is the covenant relationship we've been given as the only place for sex. So have you learned how to be humble? James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We are called to humility through the gospel. So When we look at a situation through gospel lenses, we can't help but see humility. Amen? Philippians 2, Jesus didn't do what Adam did. Adam was there going, I want to be like you, God. I'm going to grasp at your divinity. But Philippians 2 says, no, no, the second Adam, Jesus, he didn't grasp at what God had or what he already had. He gave it up, became human in humility, went to the cross. So we look at the gospel and you cannot but see we are called to say the same words that Jesus said, not my will but yours be done. I've got to submit myself under the words of God. Humility believes God said it and that settles it. It's easier to say and harder to live. But as a community, I'm trying to say, that's probably worth us having up there as a slogan. God said it and that settles it. Christian humility is motivation for sexual purity. That is coming under God's instruction. And the second thing that we find is Christian unity is motivation for sexual purity. And I found this, it sort of caught me off guard. I think it's actually really true. But in our individualistic Western society, it seems ridiculous that how we all act impacts each of us. It's just hard to believe it really does, but it does. Verse 6, he writes, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. We made the point last week that the gospel is our reason for unity. How does that work? Well, if you look at a cross... The cross of Jesus had flat ground at, the le- at level. When we all come to the foot of the cross, we're on the same ground. We're all sinners. We're all sinners in need of grace. We're all sinners in need of mercy. No one can sit there and point the finger at anyone. There's four fingers pointing back at you. Um, we are united in our need of a saviour. But we also saw last week something sort of weird. It said that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but not just as individuals. Somehow, mysteriously, spiritually, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit together. So I would put it to you that one of the big takeaways from this portion of God's word is our unity as the body of Christ is motivation for sexual purity. Because how we act affects the whole. What we allow to become the norm will affect everyone. What is our motivation for sexual purity? Our motivation is the fact that we're united in Christ, co-temples of his spirit, so our actions ultimately affect everyone else. We know this today, don't we, that we're connected? Probably more than any generation. What we do with our water affects everyone who drinks that water. What we do to the air affects everyone who's breathing the same air. We're currently living through the the worldwide pandemic of COVID-19. Have you thought about this? We know better about the, the danger of a contagious disease than any other living generation. What it could do to the world when it gets that name, pandemic. We know what it means for something that's catalytic to spread. Paul writes, your boasting, in other words, your arrogance is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Yeast is a living organism that is used to cause the bread to rise, isn't it? It, it, A little bit is kept for the next batch and then used again and again. But there's a point where there's a danger that bacteria has been able to grow in the yeast. And so the Bible taught in the Old Testament that they should throw out the yeast um, periodically and start again. So first century people understood what Paul meant by yeast spreading through the dough. Are you picking up what is sort of strange here? As I said before, the issue is not just about an individual's choice of sexual relationships or the way that we express our sexuality. The individual's sin is directly connected to the health of the church. The church is a living body interconnected spiritually called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul is urgently saying this sin and the corresponding arrogance which is accepting it 
is gangrenous, it's poisonous, it will harm the body. So the sinner needs to be expelled. Now, if you look up the best commentaries on this passage, it's a hard one to understand in some ways, and other ways it's, it's obvious. But what does this type of dealing with sin mean for today? I mean, I'm certainly not suggesting we sort of take this and run with it, that we find a sinner and expel them as quick as we can. I mean, of course, there's some real challenges to thinking, what do we do with that? I think we must agree the primary meaning which we can't escape is simply the fact that tolerating a culture of sin, be it sexual or as verse 11 says, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, swindling, will always affect the broader group at some stage. It's saying we are connected, we're united, we need one another and we affect one another. The things we tolerate in Christian community are the things we sanction. Think about your life. Some of us that are older weren't allowed to go to the dance at school. You might have thought now, that might have been overreacting. I remember cards. You couldn't have cards. And I guess as good Baptists, we, we were historically some of the most stringent, like puritanical um, Staying on the holy path. Um, it's hard, isn't it? Because there's so many things you look back and go, that was legalism. Are you with me? Like, <coughs> you look back and go, ah, that wasn't so much. But, you know, I think back. And I say this because I think I need to, as part of the ongoing discussion, it's not honestly in judgment because we have to be as a swindler and a bit greedy and you come under God's judgment. So no one's pointing fingers. But in the 80s, I remember, I'm a teenager, and some people that I looked up to in the church, Christians, they start going, they're not married, but they go away on holidays together. Please, I'm not trying to judge you if you were one of those people or do now. I'm not. I'm just saying it's, it's an issue. I don't think it would have been the norm in the 50s or 60s to have Christian people going away on holidays together. Would it? Would it would, just, I'm asking the question. It would be probably more rare. Certainly in the 80s, it was relatively rare too, but I noticed a change. It was like, this seems to be normal that you would go away. And of course, if there's ever a discussion between the parent and the child or, um, or the pastor and the person, they go, how dare you? <laughs> it's, it's actually quite indig indignation. How dare, what are you suggesting? And of course, the older person says, just that you're normal like any of us and you have sexual desire. And if you actually like the person... It's really hard if you put yourself in a position where you're by yourself in the dark to not do the wrong thing. But that seemed to become normal. Not many people were living together before marriage back then in Christian circles. But it's interesting, you fast forward 35 years when you keep on saying, no, we, we're not legalists, we're not antiquated, you know, Prehistoric dinosaurs. Don't, can't you see society has changed? And you get to the point now where it's like, oh, it's, that's cool. This is not completely accepted, but it's, it's pretty normal to live together. And yet the Bible's really clear. It's really clear. Keep the marriage bed pure because you may not get married to that person. And then you've gone and spoiled each other for others. Spoiled to a point, right? Because there's grace. We're, we're, we're not ruined, but we get affected. 
What do we do with all of that? Well, I just feel like we have to come under God's word and soberly ask in humility, is this right or are we heading in a direction that we're setting up the next generation because they just arrive in the culture and they're like, what's the norm? I don't know about adulthood, so just tell me, what's the norm? Oh, look, sex isn't that much of a big deal. Get amongst it. And if I'm that young person, I feel like saying, you guys, you ripped me off. Why didn't you tell me this stuck and it affects me? And oh, what is what the Bible does say? That's why, that's why Paul is saying, get that yeast out. You cannot just be the same as what you would have been without Jesus. Now you're different. Now you're new humanity. I submit that humbly with grace for us to think about with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because I know some of you are sitting there going, who are you, you prehistoric dinosaur? Our country allows gay people to get married. What are you talking about? Don't think that's not lost on me. I get it. It's hard to go, wow, this is what society approves. <laughs> and But the Bible, and we've got Christians who think that's okay. It's something we, we continually seek the Lord for. It's, it's very real, this stuff. Um, humility, unity, last one. Paul contends Christian identity is motivation for sexual purity. He writes in verse 9, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually, and this is so important for us to realise, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, or, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't see that putting any sort of hierarchy of sin. I think mean, it's just saying this sin does not inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so we're looking at a bit of text here, so let's keep moving. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Of course, this is what was happening all the time up there on the hill. It was how you found out um, direction from the god Aphrodite about your future sex life and love life. You had to go and have sex with a prostitute and all this horrible stuff. So it's part of their culture. Do you not know that one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. There aren't that many other things in the Bible that say that. Flee. Flee. Just jump, get, run. Don't go, oh, I think I've got this. I've got my breastplate of righteousness, my helmet of salvation. <laughs> Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Do the bolt. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Church, we're not our own. 
You were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. I wonder if you would agree. There is no greater motivator in life than identity. What do you think? Is there a greater motivator than who you think you are? People do all sorts of things to themselves because they are convinced that they are a certain type of person. People tragically will allow others to harm them in, again and again in abusive relationships because of an identity that they have accepted. And they're lies from the evil one. False identities like shame-filled. I am nothing but shame-filled. I am worthless. That's who I am. I am deserving of punishment. I am to be objectified. I am a failure. I am unlovable. I am damaged goods. The lens of the gospel shows a very different person in the mirror. Amen? The lens of the gospel. You could think that, and and it could be fair enough from what's happened in life to you. But the lens of the gospel shows a very different identity. When you believe in Jesus, verse 11 is true of you. It says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sanctified means what? Made holy. Holy after what I've done? Yep. Yep. You can be made holy by faith in Christ. We have been made holy. That's our identity. Hallelujah. The holy ones. We're saints. If we believe in Jesus and are filled by his spirit, we're washed clean from every mistake, every sin, every guilty stain. That's what we sang about before. Every shame-filled action, we have been washed. Verse 19 says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. What does price convey? What does it Value and worth. If there's nothing else to take away from this particular sermon, grab this one. If God's son died on a cross to pay the price for your sin and mine, what does that say about our worth? If price conveys worth, you were bought at a price. What does it cost to buy you? The blood of Christ, the perfect life of God in his son. That says to us all, we have infinite worth in us intrinsically. We're born with it. There's no human being that's ever come into this world that didn't have infinite worth. No matter what their culture says they are worth, they are worth the price paid for them. Hallelujah. That's what you're worth. That's what you're worth. You're worth that. You have infinite value. In God's eyes. And that can change us. I've never forgotten the youth ministry illustration I heard as a teenager about Biff and Buck. Biff and Buck were sort of pretty much pagans, American teenagers. And they used to, you know, chase the girls and do things they shouldn't do and drink heaps, get drunk, eat too much food. And uh, they were unfit, but they, were, they had potential. And the footy coach saw the potential in them and one day asked them to join his team. So he jo- they joined the team, Biff and Buck. And they started to train and learn how it is to be fit and, and learn how to play the game. And, and all of a sudden they... 
They learnt that eating the wrong things wasn't helpful and, and hanging out with the wrong people wasn't helpful and drinking too much wasn't helpful. And one day, the old crowd they used to hang out with all the time, they came to Biff and Buck and they said, Hey, Biff and Buck, come with us. We're going to go and get drunk and eat fatty food and do things that are immoral. Are you coming? And I went, nah, we don't do that anymore. Sounds like they're Aussies. They were Aussies. Biff and, Biff and Buck were Aussies over there in Oklahoma. Um, and we don't do that. And then I turn back to the uh, American. Um, they said, we're athletes. <laughs> Suddenly it's Forrest Gump. <laughs> no, but they said, we don't do that anymore. Anyone experience this in life? I used to do that, but something changed in my identity. When I look in the mirror, I'm like, ah, I don't do that anymore. And you know what we know with neuroscience now? There are things firing in the brain that are changing neural pathways, that are reinforcing, you're not that person, you're that person. And that's what to be sanctified is. We learn the way of the master. Different ways to respond to stimuli, different ways to respond to what the, commu- the society says, that's okay, and we go, no, it's not okay. I've learned a different path, the way of the master, and that's what matters to me. It is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. New creation, new identity, made holy. So, finishing up, what is our motivation for sexual purity? We have been given instructions to live by in and through humility. As Christians, we are filled with the Spirit and joined together in unity. We are made holy and given in Christ a new identity. Humility, unity, identity. How am I going to walk with sexual purity? By God's grace. Believe this. God said it and that settles it. I've got to learn the habit of righteousness to go, who said it? God said it. That settles it. That's humility. To think, my, how am I going to walk with sexual purity? To try to think through, does my sin affect the community? We need to believe that and think, you know what? Let's point each other towards holiness for the sake of the next generation, for the sake of community. And you know, this identity thing is preach the gospel to yourself daily. I've been bought at a price. I'm a saint who sins. That's my identity. I'm a holy one of God and I am, by God's grace, going to honour God with my body. Amen. Let's sing together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.